0: Imagine moving a mechanical arm by just thinking about it or playing a video game using only your mind or how about conveying thoughts telepathically, communicating with others through a computer that decodes imagined speech. The ability to link minds and machines is the well-worn stuff of science fiction, but science and engineering advances in so-called brain-computer interfaces or BCIs have rapidly brought these fantastical ideas into the realm of science facts with remarkable implications.
1: A person would imagine making movements and that intention to move would be conveyed to a second person. We were able to get four people with motor neurone disease to control a
2: computer using their mind. We have people driving vehicles and they're a quarter to three quarters of a second faster in their reflexes and currents of an emergency stop than the able-bodied person next to them.
0: Welcome to New Foundations, In this week's episode, we'll ask whether we're at a turning point for brain-computer interfaces, explore what the next decade looks like for its medical and consumer applications, and how to responsibly shape its development. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management, and we thank them for their support.
3: I had my spinal cord injury in 2010, and after about a year and a half of extensive inpatient and outpatient therapy... I was still looking for more that I could do to improve my personal ability as well as you know look forward for hope for the future for other individuals in my same situation.
0: This is Ian Burkhart. Three years after he was paralyzed from the chest down, Ian volunteered for an experimental study at Ohio State University.
2: There's more amazing progress from a man who uses his brain waves and cutting-edge technology to overcome his paralysis.
3: In a breathtaking demonstration, the 23-year-old became the first patient ever to move a paralyzed hand by using his own thoughts.
0: Ian became the first quadriplegic to regain movement and touch thanks to a brain-computer interface, or BCI, which decoded signals from his brain, and electrically stimulated his own muscles.
3: The BCI system I used was set to control a muscle stimulation sleeve on my forearm. So essentially there was a small implant that was placed on the surface of my brain in the motor cortex that was able to detect signals when I was thinking about moving a particular portion of my hand or arm. When I would think about moving a individual finger or my hand all together they could map that then that signal to the muscle stimulation sleeve for the intended movement. So I would think about opening my hand and that would trigger the muscle stimulation pattern to actually open my hand. So this essentially was bypassing the damaged spinal cord by using a brain computer interface to process all that information.
0: Ian Burkhart is now creating a BCI user-led community, the BCI Pioneers Coalition, to support and promote discussion among current patients and potential patients in this fledgling
3: field of research. It really is a very beneficial field in the sense that most people are able to get a lot of use out of it, with the caveat that most of these individuals are not using the devices at home in their lives to do things outside of the research everything right now is really focused around the research questions and solving that so we can learn more and more about how to translate these devices but there are some individuals who have been able to use them independently at home to you know be able to control a computer and control a mouse cursor so you can play video games you can draw art you can do you know anything that you're using a computer mouse for right now. And most of the individuals that, have, that I've spoken with have been able to really gain a lot of use out of these types of technologies, whether that be in the clinic or in the home. And I think it's really just going to catch wildfire once it gets to be something that more and more people are using at home and outside of these clinical trials so they can really push the boundaries as far as what they want the technology to be used for.
0: Healthcare companies and startups are pushing BCIs as part of a wider boom in advanced health tech. Currently, the focus is mostly on providing additional supportive technologies for people with disabilities, such as restoring function to those that have experienced paralysis as a result of spinal cord injuries or neurodegenerative disease. Ian Burkhardt's implant was developed with BlackRock Neurotech, Today, around the world, 36 people have an implanted brain-computer interface. 32 of them use BlackRock's technology. Florian Solzbacher is the co-founder, executive chairman and president of BlackRock Neurotech and a professor and chair at the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Utah. He explains how the technology works.
2: What we do is more like the electron microscope where you can go down to almost, you know, an atomic level, see all the individual cells, record from them, and then from the ground up build those signals. In practice, what does it mean? That we can tap into those functions that are intuitively there. When I talk, when I move my hand, when I grab my phone, those signals are encoded in my brain. We can tap into all those fundamental signals the basic data that is there, decode that and then all the patient has to do is for example reach out to grab for this. Of course their arm is no longer connected to the nervous system so it won't work. In their head the signal is still the same. We can restore that. So they can intuitively very quickly do that. For example in the thought to text the patient imagines handwriting. Any character, any symbol that they could imagine writing can be clearly decoded and very quickly with high precision. So the people that are the pioneers in the current ongoing uh, chronic research studies are doing all sorts of tasks from uh, controlling their computer at very high speed, converting uh, thought to text at a pace that I can't keep up with on my cell phone when I use my thumb, so we're... You know, at uh, above 90 characters per minute, uh, you know, on a clear path to 150 and more uh, with very high accuracy. They control robot arms to, um, you know, manipulate things around in their environment to give them independence. So, in the end, what you get is a tool that is very, very high performance and gives them, uh, you know, a wealth of capabilities that they didn't have. Before. The same on the sensory feedback side. So, you know, we know where we need to kind of go to get the sense of touch for individual digits on the fingers, etc. So it's really quite fascinating to see that, and it's wonderful to be able to start giving that back.
4: Nathan is moving this hand with his brain. And so when he was giving me a fist bump or shaking my hand, these are his own. Uh, signals that he's sending out but in addition what's uh, also very cool is is that when i'm moving the hand it is also sending signals to nathan so that he is feeling me touching and pulling on this robotic arm
2: we've documented sensory feedback and embodiment, Uh, you know, the handshake with President Obama, which uh, was in the press quite a bit a few years ago, and that work has continued on. On the motor and sort of primary sensory side, there's been massive progress, and there's ways of giving back function or independence that people have lost that is really significant, and that is often also addressed an, a number of additional comorbidities and challenges you know ranging all the way from depression obesity diabetes etc these things that come with somebody who's lost their meaning of life because they're sort of stuck because of either a spinal cord injury due to an accident. Uh, we've had stroke patients we've had and these are some of the most difficult, Situations to deal with like ALS patients that transition step by step into a locked in state. Restoring function including sensory function. There's an awful lot that's happened and we're quite confident that this is now as safe as it can get. The risk to benefit ratio profile that every medical device is being tested against looks very, very strong for the kind of things we can offer now.
0: Since making history, Ian Burkhardt's own story has become intrinsically linked with the story of the advancement of BCIs. So from the inside, and as a user of the technology, how has he seen the field develop?
3: Now that we're getting to the point where these devices are being really more focused on commercial products, you're going to see more devices that are maybe fully implanted or minimally invasive, to the point where it's much easier for the patient to set up the device and get going and i think the biggest thing that has expanded the growth in this field has been the ability to have these types of devices implanted for longer periods of time so myself i had the device for about seven and a half years i actually just got surpassed of the record of someone that had a Utah array implanted. Um, But when I was implanted in 2014, it was something where we thought the device would last maybe 12 to 18 months. And so the fact that it lasted seven and a half years was something that was really valuable because if you're asking a patient to undergo neurosurgery to have the device implanted, then another neurosurgery to have the device removed when it stops working or at the end of the clinical trial, you want to make sure it's something that they can get a lot of value out of. It's been really exciting to see the changes since I was implanted and the overall awareness of brain-computer interface technology has been really exciting. I think we are now at a tipping point where, you know, the technology isn't necessarily completely there. But it's kind of like the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk. It's ready to be amplified and refined so that it can be used in everyday life.
2: I'm sort of using as a comparison what I've seen in the Human Genome Project.
3: Florian Salzbacher again which
2: I think 20, 25 years ago went through a similar inflection point where there were a couple of decades of strongly government-funded research, a few major breakthroughs. Then the financial markets started recognizing some of the opportunities, started cautiously investing, and that became a snowball effect. And if you today we look at all the advanced PCR technologies, advanced cancer treatments, diagnostics, even what was used during the COVID pandemic, none of that would have existed as an additional leg for uh, both uh, diagnostics and treatment without that. If I now look at brain-computer interfaces, there's first of all technological markers. The number, frequency, and impact of first-in-human demonstrations of advances over the last 10 years has kept increasing, you know, from the first patients that document well, actually there are signals that you can do something with it. Then the concern, will it function for longer? Oh, yes, it will. Can you do so? You know, we've kept adding capabilities and the performance and the news of people having breakthroughs in that field, not only us, but overall, just keeps increasing, going faster and faster. That is often a clear indicator that we're getting to a point where this is really, really starting to take off. There have been significant advances in miniaturization. Recent years have really made jumps in AI and machine learning. The processing of these massive amounts of data is really important. And so things that when we started were big 19-inch rack-mounted systems... We've reduced to something that is sort of a chip the size of a thumbnail. The processing power that, you know, in terms of the post-processing happen, and, and the algorithms have really made massive advances, which really allows us to do things that in the past would have taken weeks to figure out. And so we, we benefit from that.
0: This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management. Here, Adrian Brossard, Senior Healthcare Analyst at Pictay, puts advancements in BCIs in context, with his view on the future of
4: healthcare innovation. The biggest challenge for the healthcare sector is to improve medical outcomes while at the same time limiting costs. There are many remaining unmet medical needs, and the only way to answer them is through further investment in research and in technology. But at the same time, people are still facing out-of-pocket medical cost increases that have outpaced inflation by a factor of five to six times since the start of this millennium. Scientific and technological improvements are measured in decades, while the investment community mostly think in years. In that context, fields such as BCI, or brain-computer interface, are still closer to fundamental academic research than to mature technologies. The field has seen major technological advancements that justify more funding, either private or public, but it may be still decades away from bringing a profitable business model to market. There are other technologies that could deliver transformative changes for society within the next decade. For instance, applying AI to genomics has allowed for significant improvement in cancer screening testing, also known as liquid biopsies. The coming years will be spent building additional clinical data, improving test sensitivities, and navigating reimbursement hurdles. Yet society is close to having a simple way to screen for cancer at a molecular level using simple blood tests. This can have massive implications in terms of population health and cancer survival rates.
0: That was Adrian Brossard of Pictay Wealth Management. When it comes to BCIs, there is one person who literally wrote the book on them nearly 10 years ago, and since has been a keen participant in the development of this technology.
1: I'm Rajesh Rao. I'm a professor in the Computer Science and Engineering School at the University of Washington. I'm also the director of the Center for Neurotechnology. In the last nine years, the field has uh, advanced uh, by leaps and bounds. So we're uh, now starting a a new trial uh, for stroke patients. This is where we can use the technology to record and stimulate these bidirectional BCIs or these co-processors for helping people uh, that are unable to move, for example, using the, the technology that we're developing to generate plasticity or you know uh, strengthening connections between areas of the brain that may have uh, been uh, weakened in terms of the connections between those areas due to stroke. And so we are excited about those more immediate applications, and we are starting to take steps towards these more targeted uh, neurorehabilitation technologies for uh, what we call engineering plasticity in the brain, The demonstrations that we're now seeing are, you know, quite amazing in terms of uh, being able to decode actual words from a limited vocabulary, but still uh, being able to decode, you know, speech, for example, imagine speech, also being able to communicate actual uh, sentences and so on, besides the, the previous demonstrations, which involved controlling prosthetics and uh, one's own arm through muscle stimulation. So I think we have seen rapid advances, similarly advances in the technology in terms of recording and stimulating the brain including um, ways to record that were not possible about 10 years ago. So, for example, the stentrode using veins as a way to navigate and get to the brain and record.
0: The company that we're talking about here is Synchron. They're developing a radically new way to insert BCIs within the brain.
1: All the
5: technology to date requires this invasive procedure of cutting open the skull and pushing electrodes through the brain. We now have a technology that can access all of these regions, but without the
0: invasive surgery. This is Dr Nicholas Opie, a biomedical engineer and the chief technology officer and founder of Synchron. In 2021, the company became the first to receive FDA approval to conduct trials of a permanently implantable BCI. Their work is wholly focused on improving the lives of people with motor neuron disease. So we knew
5: that the idea was feasible. What we wanted to address was how we can make it safer, And so to do so, instead of uh, removing any of the skull or by touching the brain itself, we came up with a a device called the stentrode, which is implanted through blood vessels in the brain, naturally occurring highway that reaches almost any areas of the brain and and particularly has an area over the motor cortex, which, which controls movement, which is important for people with paralysis. So without having to do any invasive surgery, And in a procedure that's commonly practiced by interventionalists all around the world to remove blood clots from people who are having strokes among other procedures, they can use this naturally occurring pathway to deliver our device to the motor cortex where it's deployed through a very small catheter. It self-expands using a special material called nitinol to push itself against the vessel wall so it keeps the blood vessel open and doesn't interrupt the blood flow. And because it's inside the vessel, It can still record the neural information underneath from the brain, but it doesn't touch the brain. And so it's invisible and the brain doesn't have the same immune responses that other technologies might face. I think it's incredible how this field's been developing over the last decade. For us, we've completed a first in human trial in in Australia. We completed that last year where we were able to get four people with motor neuron disease to control a computer using their mind and using the stentrode that was inserted over their motor cortex. They were able to use the computer to perform activities of daily living, such as communication, emailing and texting and calling on the phone. They could um, do home shopping and home banking. And we're only really at the the start of, of what this technology can do. I think for us, provided that it continues to work safely, which so far, there have been no serious adverse events in any of the five participants we've implanted. If that continues to be the trend and we can continue to understand more about the brain signals and how we can allow people to use them to control external devices and assistive equipment, then I'm sure there's going to be many applications and many technologies that these people will be able to take advantage
0: of.
1: Rajesh Rao. In the longer term, uh, we're also excited about applications that may go beyond medical applications. But these are applications such as brain-to-brain interfacing or brain-to-brain communication, something we worked on early on. So starting back in 2013 and 2014, we demonstrated the very first uh, non-invasive brain-to-brain interface where a person would imagine making movements and that intention to move would be conveyed to a second person through magnetic stimulation of their uh, motor part of their brain for controlling their hand. And so one person's intention was conveyed for the first time to another per- another human in terms of uh, both of them collaborating through a brain-to-brain interface to solve a problem, in this case a, uh, a video game that, were, that they were playing together. And more recently, we've connected three people together, again using EEG or non-invasive uh, scalp recording and transcranial Magnetic Stimulation, or TMS, um, as a way to, again, demonstrate that three people can together solve a task that neither one of them alone could solve. Um, and so these are just examples or proof of concept of uh, what could be possible in the future. But at the same time, these proof of concepts also bring forth a lot of interesting and important Issues in terms of um, you know, ethical issues, in terms of uh, legal issues and so on, um, that uh, our team, the new ethics team at our centre, is, is, has been working on for the last 10 years.
0: As the technology improves and gains acceptance, pioneers are paving the way for an almost limitless range of potential medical applications, and able-bodied and consumer applications as well. What's the path forward then, and what are the considerations as these technologies
1: evolve? i think there's no stopping that uh, the kind of technology because of the enormous you know advantages uh, it's going to confer to you know humanity in general in terms of you know the way we've been augmenting ourselves with uh, you know everything from cars and airplanes to augment our physical capabilities all the way to our uh, you know information capacities with smartphones and computers and so on I regard brain computer interfaces these co cool processors and brain to brain interfaces as just uh, you know um, eventually another step towards augmenting uh, the brain directly with further capacities and so uh, the technology is moving ahead, but we also have uh, this responsibility to uh, start talking about the potential you know implications for other aspects of uh, you know uh, human society and I think this is something that academics, you know, are well-equipped to do because um, they have been doing this for other kinds of technologies as well, uh, including AI. And that's something that's happening now. And so compared to industry, uh, companies are in the business of, you know, uh, pushing the technology forward, looking at, you know, how it Benefits their shareholders and so on. Um, so I think it, it, it behooves the companies to work with academics, and academics have the responsibility, I think, to look at these technologies that are coming up on the horizon and uh, potentially collaborate on working on some of these issues so that regulators um, have some grasp of, you know, what are the potential ways to address these thorny issues as they come up in the future? And we want to do that before it's too late, right? In many In many cases, technologies have gone too quickly, and then we realised too late that there were these um, unforeseen circumstances and ramifications that we were not able to you know, anticipate. And so the more we can do now, the better we'll have an understanding. And we'll be able to address many of them, hopefully, but uh, there's still going to be some things that slip through the cracks, and so we'll deal with those when they arise. Um, but, but at this point, I think uh, the best we can do right now is to start to anticipate some of these potential issues that I mentioned. But
0: develop it will. Pandora's box is being opened, and although they're not yet in widespread use, we do need to start thinking wider about their adoption.
2: What is not clear is at what point this may become a broader use case, which is also the most challenging, and I say, both from an ethical point of view and societal point of view, potentially most contentious point is, will there be able-bodied people who may want to use the technology, which is when, of course, this could, grow much, much, much further. That is why I think it is so important, and we started that, to have independent ethics boards and bodies that start thinking about, as a society, what are the underlying fundamental principles we want to apply in enabling that or not. You know, I think what may happen as a next step, just as a guess, is that people like first responders, military personnel, etc., may be interested. You know, once it becomes clear, you can have these implants, they last for 10 years, you can even re-implant, it's not a big deal. But we have people driving vehicles and they're a quarter to three quarters of a second faster in their reflexes and currents of an emergency stop than the able-bodied person next to them. That is scary but also really, really impressive. And from a safety point of view, wouldn't you want to have a situation where somebody can be safer and faster? And so I could very much imagine it's somebody, whatever, firefighter who's helping in the big blasts in California or, as I said, military personnel that we keep sending all over the world, that there may not be people who say, you know what, if this keeps me safer, we're already using body armor, electronics, night vision goggles, all sorts of other things. And if it's safe... Why Why not do that? These could potentially be first adopters, but that is very, very hard to tell. That is a question where, whether as a society we're ready. And the big challenge there is, of course, that when people think about that, because it is such a complex topic, on the one hand, we can do marvelous things to help people that have lost function already. And when it goes to motor and sensory function, there's really massive advances and capabilities that really border on enhancement. As a society, however, we're then often driven also by the Hollywood-inspired fears of, my God, is somebody reading out my brain? That's the inner part of me. Do I actually want to share that? And do no, I don't want people to to, to sort of listen in. And the reality is we are very far away from that. <laughs> While we can do really amazing things already, even the most advanced solutions you know, uh, are a few thousand channels. In research, we're working on devices now that go a few orders of magnitude beyond that. That's still a small fraction of the 55 billion neurons and even smaller fraction of the connections between it. So I think to get into those realms, I can't even tell you how far we are away. But yes, I do anticipate that in 10, 15 years from now, these implants will become likely just as acceptable as cardiac pacemakers, DBS implants for Parkinson's patients, cochlear implants are today, where people won't go in and say, oh my God, you're doing this. It's like, no, it's part of our standard portfolio of treatment options that we provide to people. And then it's still up to you to say, I want it or I don't want it.
0: That is it for this episode of New Foundations. If you liked what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again to Pictet Wealth Management for their support. You can find out more about the series as well as articles and further reading at newfoundations.economist.com.